The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. And um, when she had the child, she saw it as a victory of God over the enemies of the theocracy, which sounds like an odd way to react to having a child until you realize that, yes, Israel was called, and this family in particular was called, to have children for symbolic reasons, as well as biological and, of course, psychological reasons. So God wants the human race to multiply, but he also wanted Israel to fulfill his promise that through them would come the Messiah, and the Messiah was to be the seed of the woman. And so having a firstborn who was a male was not some element of pride and uh, some peculiar cultural thing that we now have to fight off. It was a theological reality having to do with producing the Messiah, which meant victory over the forces of evil. So if you read Read over uh, her prayer in 1 Samuel 2, which is the same basic prayer that Mary um, said in the Magnificat in Luke. Um, You'll see that there's this tremendous theological element involved. Which means that when you get to the New Testament, after the coming of Christ, the desire for the child is no longer linked to messianic expectations. Messiah's already come. Yes, the desire is strong, and the frustration of that desire is still a problem, but it's not the same kind of theological problem as it was in the Old Testament. It now goes back to the general will of God, and also the specific Christian hope for having Christian children that will populate the earth. Uh, The child is given as an example of the type of person that God has in his kingdom. Um, The kingdom of heaven is made up of such as these, these little children. And so that's a Christian hope. But it's not any longer the same kind of uh, hope or um, desire or drive that you would have in Hannah's time. So the general feeling about infertility is that it is a very difficult problem, and it is... um, It is one which continues to be a legitimate call for finding remedies, but it should not become the the strong uh, drive that it was in the Old Testament connected with the the hope of the Messiah, because we're in a different age. Yeah. I think as far as the promise of the Messiah... There was some connection with judgment, but it was not always, and perhaps not even often, a judgment on the individual family. It was the general judgment that we all have when we get sick, you know, when I get a cold. It's not because necessarily I've been a bad boy. It's because we're in a fallen world and people get sick. You know, I have a cold, that's why I'm saying that. Um, On the other hand, there surely were cases where God did visit that on a particular family for particular reasons. In the case of Hannah, I think you have a glorious thing, which is that he's going to point out 
a miracle. He's going to make do a miracle, and it's going to be a a, a prototype of the virgin birth. And so God closes the womb. He opens the womb. Is the language used in the, in the Old Testament? Uh, but so th- there could have been cases where they were right, but often it was a very cruel judgment of of people who didn't understand that uh, it had a theological purpose and it had connections with the fall rather than with you know this family sin. We're going to give them a hard time with children. Let me um, let me uh, make a few more remarks, and then I think we should have a discussion about this. Um, I'd, because of these considerations about infertility, I would say that whatever our ethical conclusions on artificial insemination, I think we need to have great compassion on a couple that struggles with infertility. Um, procreation is a blessing of God, and any impediment or frustration in this in this area is a, is a dysfunction, and it is to be combated uh, like other dysfunctions, but always in uh, conformity to God's revealed will. And one must ask in this uh, regard whether scientific progress um, has set us so far from the biblical world that there's any wisdom to be gained at all from the scripture. But I would answer that it, that is not the case, that the Bible does have um, elements of answers, even for the very highly technical things that we're involved with today. And I'll try to give you my position, and I'd be very interested to hear you come back and see what, 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 you, what you think of, um, of this. Um, the, I'm not going to say anything about the technolo- technological aspect because we've talked already about the general principle of technology, and I think the answer is going to be the same there. Technology in itself is fine. Just don't use it for something that's um, illegitimately manipulative. Uh, can artificial insemination have a character that is against God's commands? And if so, how would that work? Well, I think the main consideration for me is that um, when procreation leaves the family sphere, um, then we have um, a a problem. Um, Genesis 2 is the complement of Genesis 1. The, The man recognized his wife and married her in the concept of a, of a covenant. And so much of the Bible's concept of marriage is involved with the covenant, covenant companionship that um, you don't, don't even need to uh, underline that, underscore that here, because we know that so well. And procreation is um, inscribed inside the circle of this marriage covenant, according to biblical uh, to biblical teaching. Um, the exception in the Old Testament of concubines and, uh, and so on is an exception. It was, as far as I can read the Bible, a, 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 it was tolerated, suffered, but never um, enjoined. Um, and another thing to say is that 
the family is not simply the physical unit of the couple and so on, but is also an emotional um, as well as contractual unit. Physical, emotional, and contractual. Um, this is why in the case of, um, in certain cases of infertility, um, I have no objection to artificial insemination by the spouse. Um, I would say that I have objection to every form of artificial insemination by a donor because it seems to me it is somehow the moral equivalent of adultery even though it is not physical adultery. It is the introduction of a third party into that contractual, emotional, physical um, sphere. Um, and I think the same reasoning would, or same influence, inference would lead us to reject um, lesbian couples, single persons, and so on. Um, not, I don't mean single parenting because you've had to, that's a whole other th subject, uh, but single parenting because you, you want to. Um, one could object that adoption uh, is the same thing, and that's certainly a biblically recommended um, practice. And here you have the introduction of a third party, or third and fourth. Um, I and mean, there's an analogy with uh, artificial insemination by the donor. Um, in my view, these are similar but different. Um, that the, uh, uh, the introduction of the third party biologically into the intimacy of a person's sexual physical identity is a very different thing from isolating the juridical, um, and then bringing the child into the circle of the effective uh, and bypassing the physical. Though I think those are similar but different. A child who comes in from the outside through the legal process of adoption and then enters into the effective um, or the emotional uh, sphere of the family by, and bypasses the sexual act in that way I think is in a very different category from the child who was introduced through the uh, the genetic uh, um, uh, the genital tracts uh, because the, of the the Bible's insistence that um, the sexual identity of a person is so crucial to um, how he or her functions as a spouse. Um, you have the challenge of that covenant at that level. Um, in, I, in the um, artificial insemination by, by donor, you're introducing a third person into the womb of the mother. And in this case, uh, that is an intimate, deeply personal and physical intrusion, which is very, very different, I think, in the case of adoption. Now, you, you may want to argue that. But I think that's where I would see um, a difference. I would also want to say that no one should rush into artificial insemination. For one thing, um, 
the success rate is not that high. Uh, for another thing, um, other means are often not tried enough or long enough. My mother uh, told me that after she'd had me, um, they were dying to have a, a second child. And um, after, I think it was a year of trying, they went to the doctor and said, help, help. You know. And the very wise old family doctor that we had said, a year, that's nothing. Just hang on. You know, Two months later, along came uh, Bob, my little brother. And so, you, not all cases is that easy, but there is a, a virtue to uh, to waiting. And then the other thing is, is a very curious thing that happens, and I don't know if medically there's any explanation for it. Maybe even psychologically there is. But if you if you do take the adoption route, um, it can um, free up whatever it was that was blocking the fertility route, and other children will begin to come naturally. This happens in a lot of cases. Uh, so that, that's simply to say that much of, some of infertility is so tied in with emotional and psychological factors that you want to be sure you've worked on that before you um, j jump into artificial insemination. Uh, bottom line is, however, um, I, don't see, uh, I don't see a problem with it um, as long as you're not pinning all your hopes on, on that. Uh, I think there is the danger that, of wanting children as an obsession and uh, forgetting that God's grace is sufficient, even in the weakness of not being able to have children. And we all know people who have struggled with this and have had to come out, you know, as they can. Um, my, uh, I have a cousin who didn't marry until she was 45, and in her case it was too late to have children. And um, she spent most of her life working with children and wanting children and so forth. Um, kind of reproaches herself now for getting married so late, but um, she has come to the conclusion that um, she's, she's not going to adopt. She's simply content that God's will for her in that couple is not to have children. Um, I have a, an uncle who had just the opposite decision. He married late. and. Um, they decided that adoption was their answer, and they've adopted a couple of kids, and it's wonderful. So I don't think there's any one way here. I think each per, each couple before God has to has to have their own answers to it. Um, I have a whole other section here on um, uh, in vitro fertilization. I'm not sure we need to go into that unless you would specifically like to. It's it's. It's a specific kind of artificial insemination. And uh, my, my argument is very similar. It would be that if it's practiced in the couple, fine. If it has to be done by a donor, I would say real moral problems for me. Um, and many cases of um, in vitro fertilization are by the donor. And I think you have the same problem of, of separating the effective from the biological, from the physical, from the, the juridical in a way that is um, that leads to hopeless numbers of problems um, and um, has the same uh, moral equivalent of um, adultery. One additional problem which I want to raise um, in the area of in vitro fertilization and that is that as far as present technique is concerned um, in the very best of cases, they can only, uh, they, they have reduced the number 
of embryos that are wasted, that is, fully fertilized embryos, fully fertilized eggs, to two or three. It used to be seven or eight. Uh, now, in several uh, labs around the world, Australia, uh, America, a couple of other places, they've gotten it down to two or three, but that's still two or three. And uh, that's, a, that's a very serious problem, I think, for Christians. Um, can we allow ourselves to, to, to tolerate a practice that, that has embryo waste? And I have wrestled with this a lot, and I have no problems with people who would say, for that reason, let's not do it at all. My own position is that as long as we're working hard on getting the number down, um, I would prefer to consider that em embryo wastage in the same category as the embryo wastage that goes on in a typical married couple anyway from month to month. Um, because um, finally, or ethically, as far as dealing with the big issues, uh, it's the same thing. Um, if God allows that to go on, um, he's obviously not the great murderer. And I think here, Balma and and all and, and the article in the um, in that book um, have a have a reasonable point that if you consider the uh, newly fertilized egg as a full-fledged, mature image-bearer of God, human beings, so of course you're murdering them by cutting them off. It's murder. Um, if, on the other hand, you consider it a human being that is um, uh, en route to becoming full-fledged and so forth, uh, though you want to do everything possible to protect that, if there is loss, you are not in the moral position of, of murder or even of manslaughter, um, any more than the Lord is murdering when a typical couple has a lot more than two or three per month. Um, so that's where I come down, but I, I fully appreciate the uh, moral scruples of those who, who would say, we can't do this because it is tampering with life at the beginning. When we get to the abortion issue next week, we'll see that that's a that's something that divides various Christians. Some Christians would say that abortion happens when you have uh, either um, you've ruined an already implanted uh, embryo, and others who would say you've already done it when you've prevented the implantation. And, and so there's lots of variants there. Um, you may want to argue with me on that, but that's that's where I come down as of you know October 15th, 1991. Okay, I'll stop. I've talked enough. What do you guys want to talk about? Every mm. month. Well, is, is that right? Every, it doesn't have to happen every month, I guess, does it? Yeah. I'll, so you can just have one that's right. that would be fertilized. Yeah, but I mean, in a, typical, in a typical year, you could have, you know, quite a bit there. Um, No, I thought I'd written this down. I have I have the exact number of wastages in various institutions and so forth, but I don't have the by artificial means. By artificial means yeah, but I don't have the human. Okay, that that's where it is. I didn't bring my big book today. It's also in um, the book by Gareth Jones, uh, which is in their bibliography. A very helpful book. Um, oh yeah, originally. Oh yeah. That is a problem. I mean, see, the reason for it is that they they select the, the healthy ones. That's 
that's what they do. And you can't get, uh, apparently, right, on present technique, you can't just get a, a healthy one on the first try, usually. You've got to have several, several tries. Um, that's the best they can do. Um, for us, of course, as you point out, there's one or, you know, you could have the odd case of twins, and one per month that would, that would fail. And the failure is not necessarily because there was something wrong genetically. It can be that, you know, but it isn't necessarily because it was sort of a half-baked thing. It, it can be just, it didn't, it didn't happen. And uh, so you could have, um, you know, every time ovulation occurred for a long time, you could have embryo wastage. Brilliant. Right. And he has the right. Yeah, that's true. That's opposed to researchers in the lab yeah. deciding, yeah. I don't want that one. That's absolutely true. Um, the, the rather, um, I suppose, casuistic way to, out of that, I think, would be to say that you go in there not with the intent to waste, um, but you, you do end up wasting um, so far. Um, the, um, this is more clear in the case of death. Uh, keeping somebody off of a ventilator, you're not doing it with the intention of killing them. But you know in a lot of cases that that's what's going to happen, they're going to die. Um, but as I say, I, I fully respect, you know, many of the pro-life people tend to be against the whole thing for this, for this reason, and that's the, exactly the argument they use. Um, and some would even go so far as when they know that there has been this loss, they'll have a little funeral service. I find that pretty absurd myself, but I, you know, I, I can see the logic of it. You know, you go back far enough, and it's a full image of God, and it's um, it's a loss, and uh, who knows? Are they in heaven? Are they going to be full grown? You know, and I mean, it's, you you get into real a lot of odd things here, but the Bible just doesn't speak to that. So, what are the issues? Well, for me, the issue is that the womb is a crucial part of motherhood and uh, to the extent that psychology confirms this we know that for example even a surrogate gets very very attached to that uh, baby being uh, grown and born and so forth and we've seen in the United States a number of cases where the surrogate says wait a minute I, I bore this baby it's mine and big tugs of war you know and so forth so I, I think that simply confirms what the Bible indicates, which is that the womb uh, belongs so uh, intimately to the procreative identity of a couple, of the mother in particular, that to, to tamper with that, even if it's for temporary reasons, you know, is, uh, is problematic. And you, you hear arguments by analogy, like, well, Mary lent her womb to the Holy Spirit I don't look at the, that, the incarnation that way. I, I see her as, as the mother. Um, I even have no problem with the uh, Eastern uh, Orthodox term, mother of God, as long as you say it uh, properly and without that superstitious idea that Mary was somehow therefore better than everybody else. Um, because she bore a child and she was the child's mother, even though this was an absolutely unique case 
and um, she had to give up her child in a way that other mothers don't. Um, some ways it was, in some ways it wasn't the same, uh, simply because of who he was. Um, but Mary and Joseph were the parents. Now Luke adds, as was supposed, I think more to say, just to underline his supernatural um, birth than to say that these were not somehow legally his parents. The very, his very identity as a human being, as a matter of fact, is dependent on having human parents. And when he was brought up, he was brought up as, as a human child. He was taught, you know, and uh, went to the synagogue and asked questions just the way you did in catechism in those days. And as he matured, he, and, and his consciousness, his messianic consciousness uh, matured as well, um, he, he began to do things that only the Son of God could do. Um, but never, as far as I can see, never in such a way as to abrogate filial responsibility. Um, and the, in Luke there, where he goes to the temple, you know, and he stays behind, and his parents go looking for him, they're worried about him. There's no case of disobedience there. He had never, his parents had not asked him, please stay with us or anything like that. Um, the, it's an unusual case because most kids at that age don't stay around asking intelligent questions of, of the teachers in the temple. And he had, and he pointed out he was doing this because he was in relation to his heavenly father. Uh, but it, it didn't ever break the, uh, the relationship there at home. And so you can, I think that's a it's, a, it's wrong to use that as an analogy to surrogacy. Yeah. Well, to me it's the moral equivalent. Um, it's an extension of, of, the, of the principle. The principle of adultery is not just that there's been physical unfaithfulness, but that there's been breach of covenant. And um, I think the physical and the covenant are so tied that if you separate them artificially, uh, you're still not out of your moral requirements that both would entail. I mean, just because a soldier goes off for two years to the army or to fight a war, it doesn't give him the right to, you know, sleep with somebody else because um, just because his wife isn't around, you know, that's um, that's still a breach of, 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 of covenant. And I, and I would say just, you know, by extension, just because the mother can't bear the child doesn't mean that she can sort of have a duplicate mother somewhere doing it for her. Um, because you are, in that sense, substituting for what the husband and wife in a monogamous, unique relationship are called to do. And, and that is to, to tie in the physical, the biological, the juridical. Um, and um, so, to me, it's, it is very much the moral equivalent though it isn't physical adultery, but it's the moral equivalent of adultery because of, of, of what you're, how you're changing the personnel involved. You're, you're bringing in a third person into a contract that was meant to be monogamous and unique. Um, and, and, and that's not the case of adoption because in adoption, um, the actual procreation has already happened and you're simply changing the legal status of, of the child um, who then enters into a new 
and, and legitimate covenant of the family um, because he wasn't there in the, in the first place. Right. And the law right now gives the right to information, you know. This even pre does present problems in, in adoption, you know. Um, I had a friend who um, was adopted when he got to be about 20, I think. He wanted to find out who his real dad was. And he went and he went through all the horrendous process. Um, his parents actually, his adopted parents supported his search. And he found the man, and they got along great, you know, and it worked, you know. And the, this, the child, um, you know, realized what had happened, and, and, he, and he actually considered the biological father to be the real father, though he was ever grateful to the adopted parents for all that they did, and, ha you know. But it's, it's really tricky. It takes a lot of maturity to understand mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. When you're 12 or 14, yeah. You wonder, yeah, no, no, you can't handle that, I would think. Um, and with artificial, uh, well, with um, in vitro fertilization, you can get into absurd scenarios. You could have a child who, who in a sense, doesn't belong to anybody. I mean, you could have a, a donor um, present the sperm to a person for um, fertilization, and then to another person for surrogacy. And by that time, you've got four parties involved in the, in the, in the production of this one child. Who, who really, whose parents are his? Well, it's hard enough, it's hard enough when, you know, a mistake is made and the kid is put up for adoption. It's hard enough just for that simple scenario. Imagine a thing like this. Right. This happens a lot. Yeah. This happens a lot. The right to the sperm. Because he didn't want to have children and he was going to be responsible for it, so he, he wanted the, the sperm to be destroyed and she wanted That's right. Yeah, access to it. In some of these uh, ones in, in Europe, they have a, a limitation on how long the sperm is allowed to be kept in these places. After, there's a statute, and I've forgotten what it is, it's something like a year. After a year, it's gone. because. So many scenarios can change in a year. I mean, so much can happen that the legal problem becomes different. Um, a friend of ours in England um, contracted um, leukemia, and um, he, he, at the stage, now I don't know much about leukemia, but you probably do as pre-med people, at the stage where you still are fertile, um, he could have given his sperm to a bank um, in case he ever got married and the wife wanted children. And then he did get married and, and at times sort of wished he had done that. Um, his wife has no problems with that and, uh, you know, they're thinking of adopting uh, because he's, he's completely uh, sterile. Um, because of his leukemia, and he got cured of that. He's had Hodgkin's, and he's got he's gotten in permanent remission. So, you know, I I think that might have been a legitimate decision, but really at the limit of what's possible. Because, uh, you know, that just the dangers are so great. He might have gotten married, 
they might have wanted to wait for a couple of years. And then things might have gone wrong. And what does he do with his sperm? I mean, you wonder what happens to it after a couple of years, too. Yeah. Right. Because they don't know. Right. I've forgotten what the longest known case is, but it's not it's not all that long for preservation. Um, another aspect of this, which we didn't mention at all, is um, embryo research. Um, of course, one of the uh, helpful things technologically in order to determine advantageous genetic manipulation practices is to be able to, to, to research on, on the human being. And uh, genetic research on the human being has no problems at all when you're just, you know, looking at a skin graft or something like that. But the best kind of all, of course, is, is, is embryo research. And uh, again, most countries have um, strictly forbidden such things. Um, America allows some of it to go on in the case of um, aborted aborted children. And uh, of course, that's a real, I think, that's a real problem when you begin to use the tissue, the embryo tissue, for, um, for research. Um, it seems to me you're dealing with something that is so close to the origins of life and the mystery of life that uh, it's pretty hard to justify, especially since, as Christians, if we're against abortion in the first place, they shouldn't have that opportunity unless it was a therapeutically um, you know, uh, necessary one, and you know, mother's life is in danger, something like that. But um, it it does raise the question of, you know, if they find a technique whereby the embryo is not harmed, you know, is this is this legitimate, uh, or if it is a legitimate abortion? If we agree that there can be a legitimate abortion, say in the case of the life of the mother being endangered, or miscarriage, you know, uh, what what are the uh, legal parameters to study um, a fetus? You know, um, I think most of us are, have some repulsion from the idea, but you know, you got to think um, as we studied last week the the organ transplant issue, you know. What are the ethical uh, criteria here? Um, um, where can you, uh, where do you draw the line, you know? Um, uh, especially when you always have this uh, challenge of, of medical advance ahead of you. Things can, you know, they can make a lot of progress um, in a short time if, if only they could get in on certain, uh, ac and get access to certain, uh, certain materials. But anyway. It's probably a good parallel what you were saying about the organ. Mm -hmm. Don, um, donors, like my sister, she had a miscarriage. I think the child was about five and a half months. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And as yeah. far as donating organs. But it's a whole person rather than an organ. <laughs> um, and it's also. Uh, oh, but a lot of that, you know, just yeah, it extracts the brain. Yeah. yeah. Brain Yeah. 
can't they, aren't there poor women that would make available? Oh boy. Or, yeah. or, or induce an abortion at the, at the right age, the right stage, so where they get the money? And it's full of, full of risks, yeah. I mean, already, uh, in America anyway, um, surrogacy is, is a money-making thing. As I say, in Europe, you're not allowed to, but, I mean, mm -hmm. tens of thousands of dollars to, people want kids so badly. I know, it's full of contradictions. We want to control what we want to do. We want to, I know, it'd be so simple. Yeah. <laughs> We're so greedy. Yeah, I'm afraid that's right. I don't know. I'm sure this is completely apocryphal, but um, supposedly Marilyn Monroe met Einstein and uh, came to Einstein and said, "Dr. Einstein, let's have a baby because you know the baby could have your brains and my looks." And Einstein turned to her and said, yeah, but let's not have a baby because maybe the baby's going to have your brains and my looks. <laughs> so they decided not to have a baby. But, uh, you know, we can't so far control that kind of thing. Um, that was a mean thing to say of Einstein's, by the way. Because Marilyn Monroe was not stupid. But anyway, um, the uh, I think the example of the Nazi experiments, which incidentally didn't really amount to much, but they were trying to do it with some of their best people, has uh, given the world a very serious uh, warning and has made the world more uh, cautious than it might otherwise be on eugenics um, and on embryo experiments and, and so forth. Um, just like the use of the bomb in World War II, whatever you think of its moral propriety, um, has made a lot of people stand up and listen when there's nuclear power. Um, and uh, in that sense, it's probably a good thing that, uh, well, not a good thing in itself, but it's, it's providential that we have such um, warnings around, because we are so greedy, to use your word, um, that we might not take seriously the risks if we hadn't, in our own age, seen that it doesn't take much to have a, a whole country go in one direction or a whole culture go in another direction. Um, and so we do get very cautious. I watched a, a TV program <coughs> when we were living in France on genetic manipulation, and it had a whole bunch of specialists there, and uh, among them was Elie Wiesel. Um, and some of these specialists were kind of saying, well, we can do it, why not, you know? And Elie Wiesel said, yeah, but you don't know what happened to my people in the 30s and 40s uh, in the name of very similar sounding kinds of things. Um, and uh, it was a powerful argument, you know, it wasn't determinative because um, just because you can do something very powerful doesn't mean you're going to use that power for evil. But in a fallen world, it's well to know that it sure can happen. There's, a, um, there's an excellent book uh, by Gareth Jones, um, 
which is in our library, called Manufacturing Humans. Manufacturing Humans, the challenge of new reproductive technologies. Gareth Jones, Manufacturing Humans, the challenge of new rep reproductive technologies. And uh, it's published by InterVarsity. Um, the first two or three chapters are basically a history, both technological and legal history, uh, of some of the ways in which these, the issue of in vitro fertilization and artificial insemination and embryo experiments have been handled by various countries. And then he goes into some biblical materials, and then he um, goes into some highly technical stuff on uh, how it all happens, and comes out with, a, I think, a very balanced view um, he, of, of, of the thing. He, I think uh, he would roughly say what we've been saying here, that, that technology in itself is not bad, you've got to use a lot of caution, um, and you don't, on the other hand, want to fear, obsessively fear, um, sort of conspiracy and so forth. Um, very, very balanced um, stuff. Got himself into trouble with some of the very extreme pro-life people because um, he, uh, he had this view that the, the embryo, though human, was not yet a fully mature human and, and that you couldn't give it exactly the same status as a newborn, that the death of an embryo is not exactly the same thing as the death of a newborn, even though it's very serious. And um, got himself into trouble for that, but I, I, I think he's got a reasonable position. Okay, well, next time um, it's abortion, right? Yeah, and I'm gonna, we're going to go over John Frame's uh, appendix and the stuff in Bauma, which is different from Frame. It's, it's against, well, it's, it's, yeah, on some issues it's, it's not it's all, at all in line with Frame. And then I'm going to show you a, uh, a brief uh, film. It's, the, it's Bill Buckley's firing line where they're interviewing Lawrence Tribe, who wrote a book in which he tries to reconcile the pro-life and pro-choice people with a third way. And uh, I will, if I have time, I'll show you uh, an ex excellent book review by Marianne Glendon at Harvard Law School about, about Tribe's book. So uh, we'll, we'll be looking at um, at the issue of abortion next time. Can't have medical ethics without doing abortion. I almost did. I almost said, let's, let's not talk about this one more time. Uh, but then I thought, well, this, that's not a responsible way to teach a course. So, Especially since Balma has a kind of unusual position.